Hey, Herberters! Like a bunch of mintats on the back of a sandworm, we are beaming straight to your ear hole. The Dickheads Podcast presents Dick Adjacent 60s Hugo Winners Series is rolling on with one of the all-time classics of science fiction, Dune by Frank Herbert. So we have a couple guest dickheads to join us tonight. Um, my name is David Agronoff. I am one of your usual co-hosts of the Dickheads podcast. Joining us tonight is two guests. First is Marissa Van Uden, who is a manuscript editor who works mostly with science fiction, fantasy, and nonfiction writers. She's been doing this for a long time, I think over a decade. But uh, some of you might know her voice from the SFF audio podcast. And she's a big dickhead as well, and they're covering many of Philip K. Dick's short stories with read-alongs on there. So welcome to the show, Marissa. Thank you. Good to be here. Yes, I'm very excited to have you here. I've been uh, wanting to get you on the podcast for a long time, and I'm sure we'll have you for a regular PKD episode at some point. But you're originally from New Zealand and living in Los Angeles, so just right up the road from us, and we're really stoked to have you. Also to join us today is Michael Moore, and he is from Richmond, Virginia. He's a teacher of French and Spanish, and uh, he has a master in multilingual studies um, and got his bachelor from VCU, but he's here because he is a giant, enormous Dune fan and super, super knowledgeable um, Dune dork, and when I put the word out on the internet... Who's the biggest Dune dork I could possibly recruit for this episode? Many people told me I needed to talk to Michael Moore. So, Michael, welcome to the Dickheads Podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. So, we are talking about the 1966 winner, well, co-winner of the Hugo Awards because Dune actually tied the year that it won. It did not win outright, so we'll talk about the other nominees, but... The Toastmaster in 1966 was one Sir Isaac Asimov. Well, he's not a Sir, but Isaac Asimov. And this award was given at Tricon in Cleveland, Ohio. As Howard the Duck would say, Cleveland. And it was September 1st through the 5th of 1966. So Frank Herbert had to trudge his way up to um, Cleveland to pick up his Hugo. Um... Yeah, he had to go to Cleveland. So the other nominees that year uh, were, um, well, obviously Dune. And this was the second time Dune was nominated. Um, the first part of Dune was nominated as a novella called Dune World for its first magazine appearance. Um, and I, be- I believe it was just the first part of Dune, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, one of the other books was This Immortal by Roger Zelazny. This is the book that... The, that Dune shares the award with. And we will be doing a separate Roger Zelazny episode with both of his two 60s winners, uh, This Immortal and Lord of Light, at another date. Um, also nominated were Squares of the City by John Bruner, uh, who, um, of course, we did an episode on Bruner's um, 1969 winner, Stand on Zanzibar, and we're big fans of Bruner here. Uh, also nominated that year was Moon is the Harsh Mistress, um, the first serialized version of Moon is the Harsh Mistress, not the complete novel. And 
Then the last nominee was a book, and I'm going to butcher the title, but it was Skylark Duquenze by Edward E. Smith. Now, this is a classic space opera, like Flash Gordon-style novella or, or serialized novel from the 30s that was reprinted. And from what I read, a lot of people thought that this book was going to get some kind of legacy award thing because it was a huge influence on a lot of the older voters, but it did not win, of course. Um, but it's interesting because I, I had never heard of that one. So, But apparently this was a very Flash Gordon-style series. So of the other books, I mean, this is a really strong category. I don't know. Has anybody else read any of the other books in this category this year? No. Nope. I think only Moon is a Hash Mistress. I think that's the only one I recognize from that list. Yeah, and we, we already recorded our Moon is a Hash Mistress episode, but um, I think between that and I know the fact that uh, This Immortal won, it just seems like it was a really strong category that year. It's not like certain years where we had like, I know with when Waystation won, I was just flabbergasted that it lost, or that it beat uh, cat's cradle but i don't think there's anything in here that necessarily that i'm like wow you know dune shouldn't have won i think dune is clearly the ultimate classic in in here and it's more surprising that it tied it, it, at all that year um but it, it, even so i would say um dune is probably a much stronger book than mood is a harsh mistress which would go on to win the in the next year and i i would uh I'd say that it, it does deserve to be a winner of, of the Hugo, and certainly we wouldn't all be here talking about it if we didn't think that um, it didn't deserve to win. Uh, I kind of I'm sorry, I jumped a little bit ahead, but why don't we all talk a little bit about our history with reading Dune? Let's start with Marissa. When did you first read Dune? Um, I think it was, I feel like I was like 12 or 13 or something like that. Um, like pretty young, and I read it and loved it. I've heard that a lot of kids don't like reading it and I I didn't understand why until I reread it as an adult and I'm like, oh yeah, there's so much complicated shit in there. But um, <laughs> as a kid, I just like, I just skated through it reading the mother-son story, you know, like all the desert camping and the cool sandworms and mm-hmm. yeah, I fell in love with it. Yeah, so, um, and how many times have you read Dune yourself? I'm actually not sure. I read it pretty regularly, um, probably like f- maybe five or six times. <laughs> okay. I am on my third time. I also read Dune first when I was probably in eighth grade, and I definitely didn't get all of it, of course, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. And I'm actually, for those of you watching on the YouTubes, this is the copy <laughs> that I originally read when it was brand new and it's all beaten, battered, and worn. Wow. And this copy was the one that my father bought me when I was in eighth grade. Um, And I don't think he knew what I... I just... I knew that there was a movie and I hadn't seen the movie yet, but I definitely... That's one of the reasons why I was like, oh, I want to get this. And, And I had heard that it was a huge influence on Star Wars. And I was, of course, a Star Wars geek, so I definitely wanted to read that. Michael, what is your history? When did you first read Dune? Um, like when I was like 14 and a half, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So my uncle was coming into town for the sole purpose of watching the Dune miniseries on Sci-Fi Channel at my grandma's house for some reason. And uh, he's like, hey, do you want to watch it? And so I watched it. And I was like, that's cool. And he had a copy of the book with him, and he handed that to me. I read, like, the first 14 pages. It's the black version, you know, with the mm-hmm. sand on the front. And um, I read those first 14 pages. I'm like, this is impossible. This is too hard for me to read. So then I went to the book exchange place right up the street from us, and I got all of his, like, smaller works that were there, like Whipping Star, Decide Experiment, Isa Heisenberg, um, uh, Green Brain, you know, all the Santa Roga Barrier. And I read those, and it was just boom, 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 boom. And I was like... I guess I'll return to Dune. And it was accelerated reader points for my school too, which was like kudos on me. So I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to read all of them, like 40 points a piece. And so then I read them all through. Wow. So you actually read Herbert's other work before really diving into Dune because most people have just read Dune. (laughs) I think I read. That's really serious too. Like at 14, you went and did that. Like, yeah. Going to go get all the short stories and figure this guy out before I dive into his novel. (laughs) Right. Well, it was. It was more like Dune was too hard for me, so I had to go do <laughs> smaller books and to feel comfortable and then come back. But you were, like, dedicated to the mission. You were like, I'm going to read it. I'm going to build up to it. <laughs> yeah, since then I can say that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's cool. And how many times do you think you've read Dune overall, Mike? Dune itself I've only read twice. Mm-hmm. But you've read I, – I I take it you've, you've just dived deeply into all the – other cursory stuff. And you've read the whole series too. We've all read yep. the whole like original yep. series, correct? Yep. Okay. Oh, no, I haven't. Oh, you haven't so read I, all the way I through. I reread the first book regularly because I love it. But I only just read um, Dune Messiah. I'm not even finished it yet because we were doing this podcast. So I was like, I should finally read the sequel. Wow. Okay. I, yeah. I have reread. The original Dune three times. I have read the entire series twice through wow. Herbert's five books or whatever it is. Um, yep. And um, and I'm I'm one of the weirdos who actually likes Children of Dune is my favorite of the series. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, I'm jumping ahead. Uh, <laughs> but let's let's talk about the writing and publication history of this. Awesome classic, and then we'll get into all the things we love and don't love, or you know how we feel about the book. Now, um, as far as the writing and publication history, the original inspiration came as early as 1957 during a trip to the dunes in Oregon on the coast, and Frank Herbert was given this assignment to uh, basically um, research how they were dealing with land erosion on the beach. And when he saw how they were controlling or manipulating the ecosystem, you can kind of see where his brain started going and his interest in ecology. Now, when people talk about this book as being purely space fantasy, it's always important to note that the original inspiration for the book was a purely scientific venture and thinking for ecology. But anyways, he outlined and wrote the first three books together, all the way through Children of Dune, were all outlined as one project. He saw them as one big novel in his mind in the beginning. And if you look at the arc that goes through the first three books, uh, the arc through Children of Dune is is much more, it seems much more clear and more thought out than when you get into the other weirder stuff 
in the books after that. And so for me, when I read that he outlined the first three together, it made a lot of sense as a writer that that's the way he was doing it. Dune was yeah, per- I think if I'd known that earlier, I would definitely have read all three of them. I've been so scared of the sequels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think you should be scared of... Um, the, the problem with Dune Messiah that most people have is that that's kind of the slow one. So well, that, that, I'm like 75% through and like totally digging it so far. So oh, it'll good. be good for the next one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you'll. I think you'll definitely enjoy it. Um, it does get into to weirder stuff after that, but those first three is, you know, because a lot of people say that they think that once Herbert kind of got a little bit of success with it, that he tried to put too much into it. But if you consider that the first three books were kind of devised together, I think mm-hmm. there's a purity of those first three books of of the concept. Now. Um, it was first published in Analog Magazine in two serialized stories, Dune World and Prophet of Dune. We already mentioned that Dune World was nominated for the Hugo in the year that it was originally published in Analog. And it is interesting to note with Analog that the editor was John W. Campbell, and we'll get into more detail uh, details about that. John W. Campbell, of course, is a controversial figure in science fiction in 2019, but at the time when he was publishing Dune and Analog, he was absolutely one of the cornerstones of the genre. So it was a huge deal for John W. Campbell to accept and publish Dune. Uh, that being said, once they published it as a serial, they immediately were trying to get it published in hardcover, and it was rejected by over tw- um, 20 publishers before... Um, his editor finally got a hold of Sterling Lanier, who is an editor at Chilton Books, and he was a big science fiction reader and had read Dune World and Analog and was a huge fan of it, and he wanted to publish it with Chilton Books. Here's the only problem. Chilton Books publishes automotive manuals, <laughs> right? <laughs> they don't do fiction, and they don't definitely don't do science fiction, and but Chilton um, Books editor, this Sterling Lanier guy, was such a huge science fiction fan and loved Dune. He convinced the um, owners of the company that they had that all these publishers had rejected it. They don't know what they have, and we're going to publish this, and it's going to be this great big deal. What a legend! Yeah, uh, <laughs> here's the problem: it didn't sell well <laughs> for Chilton Books. Uh, when but it, he knew. He had a vision. He did have a vision, uh, but it had a $5.95 price tag, which roughly adjusted for our times, that would be about 45 bucks. Um, wow. For a hardcover. It was not cheap, and it definitely did not sell well at first. So much so that um, our boy uh, Sterling got fired uh, for publishing Dune. He lost his job at Chilton Books. And that is the saddest freaking story. Yes. Now, here's the thing. It quickly got nominated for Hugo, and once Ace, in 1965, later in the year, bought the paperback rights, just the fact that Ace had made this move and the nomination happened, then the book started selling. Here's the thing. 
uh, Sterling already lost his job. <laughs> he had already been fired for taking the um, taking on Dune, and we do know also that Don Wolheim, who is the editor at Ace, who our Dickheads listeners are very familiar with because he published almost all of Philip K. Dick's early work. And he's somebody we talk about all the time. We talk about Don Wolheim constantly on the Dickheads podcast because he constantly was changing titles for PKD, and usually he was making the right choice. Usually PKD had these really stupid titles. Well, he apparently had tried to convince Herbert to change the title of Dune because he was afraid people would think it was a Western, right? And Ace did publish Westerns. But because it had already gotten nominated and so on, he kind of let that go. Nonetheless, uh, Don Wolheim did eventually publish it, and we have the book that we eventually grew to know as a classic. So now we have Dune. There are some interesting quotes from especially John W. Campbell, and one of the really funny things was that John W. Campbell's first note to Frank Herbert was, congratulations, you have a 15-year-old Superman novel. (laughs) (laughs) And if people know that John Campbell was wanted psychic teenager stories and superhuman characters was like a big thing with him. And so it was funny because all John W. Campbell saw when he first got Dune was that Paul Atreides was like a superhuman character. He didn't see any of the other (laughs) aspects of it. (laughs) He just saw, you know, congratulations, you have this, um, this superhero character. And Hmm. he also, I know, um, his, his editor also had gotten a letter and this is really funny on May 25th, 1963. So this is close to two years before it was published as a novel. He said, dear Frank, I had a call from John Campbell this morning. He's interested in Dune and I'm seeing him on Monday to hear what he has to say. The original copy went to him last week. I had corrected all the pages, deleting, adding, substituting certain pages. In places where one and a half to a dozen words had been substituted, the old lines were X'd out and the new words were typed over in pen. But here are seven pages to retype. And so the reason why I mention this is really interesting is just how heavily involved in the editing process John Campbell was originally. Or, or, oh, and I found, oh, I'm sorry, I found the exact quote. He said, concerning the leading character, Campbell wrote, congratulations, you are now the father of a 15-year-old Superman. (laughs) If Dune is to be the first of three, and you're planning to use Paul in the future ones, oh man, you've set yourself up with a problem. You might want to make the next one somewhat more plottable if you didn't give Paul quite so much of the super duper. (laughs) (laughs) Less of the super duper. (laughs) A little less of the super duper. Little did he know that he had already planned to take away his super duper. <laughs> and um, I noticed, too, that, that in, this all comes from, there's a book, and I'm holding it up here for your YouTubers, uh, called Road to Dune, which is credited to Frank Herbert, Brian Herbert, and Kevin, Kevin J. Anderson. And But one of the things is there's a section that has all the letters between Frank Herbert, Lurton, 
his Lurton Blazing game, his awesomely named agent. Um, and so they have all these awesome letters, and they're just amazing to read, especially, like, there's one where he's talking about somebody basically says it's just basically a fantasy, and Herbert gets really pissed about the idea that it's just a fantasy and it explains the science behind the still suit and the water and the ecology just to say like, Hey, this is really science fiction. This yeah. Is- there's a lot of science stuff in there. Yeah. So I'm going to open the floor now. Um, Michael, uh, we haven't heard from you in a little bit for, for you. When you first dug into Dune after you read all those other ones, what was it that struck you most about Dune the first time you read it? So it's like something very personal, like in my life, which is um, like how I was raised. And I was raised by a single mom, right? And, you know, dad left at three, didn't come back. It was, uh, I won't go too much of the history, but yeah, dad wasn't around, right? And so like male and female difference was something on my mind from a very young age. And so like in that book, they're talking about subtleties of like actions that, that the average man falls into or the average woman falls into usually in their thinking. And then later, like all the books that I've read since Frank Herbert have to do with things that Frank Herbert pointed me toward, like neuroscience, psychology, especially evolutionary psychology, right? If you go into God Emperor Dune, he's getting into the chimp cultures and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a lot of this neuroscience, which we can point to nowadays, this stuff is scientific. It's not just like, anecdotal anymore and so what i was seeing in all of his books was like yeah like he's really good at pinpointing like how men and women are different but then like reading dreamer of dune later by brian herbert you get to see that his wife was like helping him with plot and like with the motivations of female characters a lot so i was like oh that's how he was able to put that in so well um and there are other things since then i mean i could literally go on for three hours with that question to tell you the truth (laughs) well we'll get more into that um i know for me personally now i'm coming at this perspective right now as i'm doing a philip k dick podcast so i'm reading a lot of especially i'm really into the new wave of science fiction from the 60s and even though frank herbert started to publish in the 60s he's never been considered a part of the new wave right he's always been kind of considered one of the classics more in line with your Clarks and your Asimovs and your Heinleins, which is really interesting to me because he really, I don't know, he doesn't come off to me so much as a part of that community either. I think he he kind of kind of stands apart from the rest of genre fiction because as much as Dune is a science fiction classic, it, it is not traditional in the in its own ways. Everything that's tropes about it are, are mostly things that became tropes because of Dune, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and just to go on that note, um, I just remember a Dreamer of Dune, like Brian Herbert talking about his dad was into didactics and teaching lessons to other people, mm-hmm. and his dad was really into philosophy, and like the two Ponts, William Tupont's version of Frank Herbert goes into the very specifics of which philosophers Frank Herbert was uh, very familiar with and stuff in different works, and how he tried to wake up uh, the readers to certain things, just like very young in, you know, with his um, relationship with the Slattery's, his friends. But Brian Herbert goes into this thing where it's like his dad 
did not at first pick science fiction. He did not actually want to do science fiction at first, but then eventually warmed up to it and was like, hey, I could take all these really deep lessons that I have to pass on to other people, and I could use this genre. And then Brian Herbert ends that whole story by saying, like, his dad finally found the right mix of didactics where he's teaching a lesson with entertaining the reader when he got successful. And he certainly did a good job of doing genre fiction. And... I, I, you know, I forgot to tell this story when um, I should have told this story when I was introducing my relationship with Dune. Um, a couple, uh, probably around 2006, uh, my wife and I lived for a year in western Washington in the middle of nowhere in a, a little town called Port Angeles. And uh, we're both vegan and we like to shop it. And one of the best health food stores in that area was in a little town called Port Townsend. And there were, we used to shop at the co-op there, and when we'd go to Port Townsend, we would walk around Port Townsend just to get, you know, a little change of pace. And one day I was walking around Port Townsend, and I just happened to go into the library there because I wanted to use the bathroom. And when I walked in, the whole library was duned out, right? There was dune displays, and there was, like, dune... There were sandworms put, painted on the walls, and I was like well, this is amazing. And I went up to the librarian and I was like, hey, so this is really cool that you're all doomed out here, but like, why? <laughs> right? And they were like, oh, well, we were Frank Herbert's library when he wrote Dune. He came to this library to do research all the time. And he lived right down the road when he wrote the first version of Dune. And I was like, holy shit, really? Like, where? <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, cool. And they, like, said, oh, yeah, it's this little white house, blah, 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 blah. Or I, I don't remember what color the house, but they told me what to look for. And then I walked over there and got weird looks from the person that lived there now who had no idea that this classic of the genre was written in the house they were living in. And they were just kind of looking at me like, hey, weirdo, get away from my house. Mm-hmm. Um But here's an interesting thing to note about Port Townsend, the place where he was living when he wrote this book. That place is one of the rainiest towns you can ever imagine. (laughs) So when he's writing about this dry-ass desert place, I just pictured him, like, you know, taking breaks and going for walks with, like, a giant rain jacket on, like, just getting dumped on. Because... And and walking to and from this library that was three blocks away. And according to the librarians there, he would routinely go and, like, set up at the library and read books on ecology and philosophy and different things that he was making notes for Dune and that the librarians that worked there at the time, of course, none of which are still there, but had told these legendary stories about Frank Herbert sitting for hours at this table at that library and that's why the library has become this shrine to dune which is just fucking cool um i can't believe those people that live in that house obviously don't go hang out in that library and (laughs) right (laughs) so just some things that i want to talk about with dune one of the things that i think is really cool and and there's such a depth to the history and the timeline of dune that before you even really get into the novel, I think one one of the keys to this, what makes Dune so amazing, is the world building. And the fact that it's really his first attempt at a science fiction novel, it's really incredible 
how much world building he was able to pack into this novel so effortlessly. And one of the best examples that I think there is in this book is that we only find out that that this future or that this story takes place in our future from like one throwaway line about the Catholic Bible and how it's been translated, right? Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about how the world building affected each of you as a reader, because for me, that is one of the things that obviously it's not just the timeline. It's the fact that there's a Butlerian Jihad that gets kind of mentioned that it's, it's enough that we understand what happened, that we understand what the Bene Gesserit are. And I think it provided a lesson, obviously for George Lucas, who was like able to, when he made star Wars to say, People will follow along. You know, they'll get it. I just say they're Jedi's and eventually people will figure it out. And I think one of the re- one of the biggest lessons for that was Dune and the way the world building works. So anyways, I just would love to hear your thoughts about how the world building affected you. Um, starting with Marissa. Um, I think pretty much exactly what you just said, uh, where there's like these little details and things are given but without all the backstory and without all the information so um when i'm reading it it's like yeah he gives you just enough to be super curious about the rest of this world and who all these different peoples are and then slowly you get it like little drips all the way through and i think that's why i really love reading it um regularly because every time i read it i see some new like detail or some new thing of the world or of a culture and i'm like what he put that in there that I didn't even notice it the last time. Like there's so much in there. Mm-hmm. It's insane. Yep. And I think that's one of the reasons too, that you get a different experience. If you listen to it on audio too, which I've, I've also done. Yeah, um, me too. I don't really count that as the time of reading it, but if you count that, then there's a fourth time in there. But uh, I really got a good experience from just sitting down and listening to it. Um, which mm-hmm. I'm not a huge audiobook fan. So that means something for me. Um, Michael, how, um, are you a big science, were you a big science fiction reader before you read Herbert or was this your introduction to the genre? Uh, it was my introduction. Okay, cool. So in that regard, um, how did, cause I was a big science fiction reader before I read Dune. And so I kind of had a bit of language for world building, but how, how was the world building for you as a first time science fiction reader? How did, how did the world construct in your mind well to like take it back to what my thinking was when i was reading it the first time and like so i'm going through all of his not all of his but like most of his other smaller works like you're talking about this is a big novel the big one right all of these other smaller works aren't really that big compared to it they're like a third or fourth right so like i'm taking themes that i've read in these other books and i'm just comparing to that and also i'm comparing based on my upbringing which like looking ahead and like reading all this other stuff about his personal life it's like wow it's it's not the same exact upbringing but there are a lot of similarities right and Mm. it's like the seriousness of his upbringing his childhood religion and a lot of the ideas that go into that like the seriousness of purpose how to be a good man one day and all that kind of stuff but anyways it's like i'm reading and i'm always thinking about two things which is like the harkonnens and how they're raising this young man uh, up, which is very sinister, very bad, right? And then Paul Atreides and how he's being raised up. And it's like one of them 
is is just animalistic, cannot control his animal instincts. The other one is being control uh, is being taught mental models of self control. Is being taught a lot of deeper stuff, right? And also uh, something that goes back to the Dasati experiment, where the protagonist George X McKee actually melds his mind with the female protagonist. So they have what's called an androgynous brain. One of the things Frank Herbert talks about in his wor- works is like. You can't be an overly male brain or an overly female brain. You need to find, like, middle ground. And it's very pertinent in his generation coming up, especially, where you have to say, like, you can't be on one side or the other. There are benefits and disadvantages to each, so you got to kind of, like, come to a middle ground, right? And this young man, he's, like, taking a lot of direction from his mom. He's willing to accept subtle touch points and things of that nature. And then even when he goes through this trance, and this just, like, like when I read him going through the trance and what he said after the trance when he wakes up and he's like, all the men failed because they're so used to being taker and they wouldn't humble themselves to be a giver. Whereas so many, he said the women were giving, were givers too much and weren't willing to be takers. So he's found middle ground. So I was always into this, like there are two young men being raised up and what are the differences between them? And then like Paul wins in the end. And this other guy who's a real animalistic bad guy gets killed. And it's like, okay, great. Beautiful. (laughs) I think Dune is a novel that, well, obviously one of the things that makes Dune great is it works on many levels. So we could talk for a long time about specifically Paul Atreides and Muhadib and his relationship with the Fremen or his relationship with Lady Jessica. And there could be a whole podcast on that with his mom and the Arconans. But basically when it comes down to it, I think one of the, basic things that dune is about is systems and it's ways of thought and it's how the galaxy as a whole in this saga um is affected by the various machinations and politics and systems and all the characters what's great about it is all the characters if you take the minor ones from duncan idaho to um what was the name of the ecologist um stilgar um Kinds. yeah and so you take all these characters but it's it's all in service to i you know the the system and what's really important about why and this is why John W Campbell eventually did not publish Dune Messiah and he had to to get another publisher for Dune Messiah is because John Campbell saw this as like you know, he wanted the super duper. He made the joke that, you know, maybe a little less super duper, but then Herbert went full no super duper <laughs> and he basically made Muhadib a failed emperor, right? Basically. Yep. And that was the plan all along because Herbert had all had all, all these quotes about that these leaders should come with a warning like, hey, we're not as awesome as you think you are or as we think we are. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So at the end, something about like the planet being afflicted by a hero. Right. Right. And I think it's really interesting because in the end, we're we can see it through the mirror of our politics, but everything you know, and and we'll, we'll you hear a lot about spices oil, right? That the the spice melange and everything that it represents in Dune is this huge analogy for for oil and it's not incorrect right 
but it's just one aspect of it, and I don't think people should read too much into that because I think mm-hmm. the more important thing is the spice is important. It's a MacGuffin for how Muhadib is able to gain control over Arrakis thus as the way the spice flows, the universe flows. But that the important thing, especially when you get deeper into the saga, is how he, how Paul Atreides is a flawed hero. And it subverts the hero's journey. And I think that's one of the reasons why people love the first book and don't really enjoy the other books as much and don't reread them is because you have this very fulfilling hero's journey in Dune and then it's not so fulfilling <laughs> if you read the other parts. But... Yep. Mm-hmm. That's what makes the point of it. Yeah. And he, it's kind of, you do get that sense at the, um, at the end of the first book. Like, you can tell it's all of his efforts to not bring the jihad. It's like, you can tell it's going to fail. Mm-hmm. And it's he done. knows, Paul Atreides knows that if he, it's kind of like, if I don't take part in it, it's going to be even worse. <laughs> right? So yeah. I kind of have to do this. And... Uh-huh. You know, we see in some of the, um, you know, in the parts, and I, I, it's been a while since I read Dune Messiah, so you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong about this, Marissa, since you just read it, or reading it now, but when he kind of goes out among the people and is just trying to hear the word on the street, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, I think... Well, if only we'd have more leaders that would do that. And I definitely think there's still a lot of really ideal things about Paul Atreides. But here's the thing I also wonder about is I wonder how much the way that book two and book three ended up were a result of John Campbell's letter affecting Herbert, right? Because Mm. editors have that impact even if you don't agree with them, right? And if you're like... You know, well, I'm going to show him or her, right? Um, and they might. I was. I've been wondering if her, if either of you think that Herbert might have been course correcting or overcorrecting um, in the way that he went further into into the story. I don't know if either of you have any thoughts on that. That's just something I've been thinking about since I read that quote. I do, Marissa. Do you have anything? Uh, my only thought is um, from the impressions that I've gotten of Frank Herbert from bits and pieces I've read he seems like a pretty strong-willed solid character so I feel like he wouldn't be too easily influenced by editors but yeah I can't really say (laughs) yep that's true that's true maybe that's maybe that's so I just I know for for example with PKD like we we are constantly seeing the give and go with his editors and you definitely saw especially in the early days in Philip K. Dick's career uh, after his first novel, Solar Lottery, came out, and everyone was like talked about what a left wing book it was, that he yeah. kind of went overboard with the the world Jones made to make it look like <laughs> I am not a left winger. Yeah. <laughs> he's like I feel like he's super sensitive and easily influenced. Like I think if someone sneezes, his book would be different. Right, right. Like. <laughs> That's true, and 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 so. I have to come at this perspective as somebody who's who's studying Dick and this project of doing all the Hugo winners is is fun for me because I'm getting into the heads of some other writers. But 
you know, I, I think one of the fun things about Dune is um, is just that like strong personality does come through. Um, I'm not as well versed in, in Herbert as you are, Mike. But um, how how much do you think uh, Herbert's personality is is a part of Dune? Okay, so um, to answer that question, uh, let me just uh, veer off back to that previous one. The two things about, like, the John Campbell thing. Or, yeah, I guess it ties in with what we were saying anyways. Yeah, okay. I'm slow. All right. So the the first thing is, like, um, in that Frank Herbert book by Tim O'Reilly. And Tim O'Reilly did a great job uh, in analyzing Frank Herbert's works because – and he didn't analyze God Emperor of Dune in later because at that time God Emperor of Dune had just come out. But um, he did a really good job of getting direct quotes from Frank Herbert. Mm-hmm. So instead of it just being his analysis, it was a mix of his analysis with a whole bunch of quotes from Frank Herbert. One of them was that um, you know John Campbell really did not like um, that Frank Herbert was making him – uh, into like an anti-hero and uh and then if you go back to dreamer of dune and link that same exact fact right there like brian herbert is talking about this whole story with john campbell where mm-hmm. his dad was making changes left and right and had agreed to make it into three books even though he only wanted to do one originally so he was having to extend some parts and do this and that right doing all the things that you do to do that kind of thing and John Campbell was literally telling him like no you're making him into an anti-hero and Frank Herbert at one point just said no uh, th- that is the point of this, and it goes back to like <laughs> destination void, where it, like Frank Herbert is teaching people you have to think for yourself. Mm. Yeah, well, but anyway, yeah, go ahead. Could you imagine if this was all one big book? Oh my god, I'm glad it's Dude. three books. <laughs> <Dude>. <laughs> I mean, if it was like the size of the stand or whatever, I I think no one would have finished it. I think yeah. you know as much as you know we give you know, some of the editors a hard time when we read these things and we kind of often, and I, 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 you might feel differently, Marissa, as an editor, but as an author, I sometimes like to side with the authors because I feel for them. But in this case, the editor was definitely correct. This was not <laughs> one book. This needed to be broken up. And, yeah. and, and I think Campbell was, was right on that. I don't think he was right on, on going too far into the anti-hero thing, but in this case, I don't know. And may I go back to that question you just asked, though? Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry I went off on that, but it's like you, you were talking about um, how strong will he is or how much of his voice versus, like, putting voice there. Mm-hmm. Um, those quotes in that Tim O'Reilly book, like, I went to read all these other books because I really wanted to kind of try to socioanalyze this guy, if you will. And he, like, that O'Reilly book really hit it on the head because in the O'Reilly book, it's Frank Herbert himself in these long paragraphs explaining like, okay, this was me doing this to teach a lesson, but then I put this other character in in this place, and I just wanted to put that in. So sometimes it's Frank's voice, sometimes it's really not. Like, for example, Frank literally hated Leto II, mm. but you wouldn't know that unless you read in other sources. And some people online in these articles are like, oh, he wrote a monster, he must be a monster, you know, so it's like that. <laughs> oh, the internet. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, and and I I would imagine, you know, when we look into, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me about this book, too, is that it holds up in some ways really, really well because the technology doesn't become dated for the simple fact that it is 
pretty much outside of the realm of our our it's such a weird future right because it's after the butlerian jihad we don't have thinking machines the technology it's so far in the future you can't really say it's it can't ever get out of date for technology some of the socio-political stuff definitely is a little dated i think um in some ways well for one thing too is there's lots of cultures represented throughout the dune books um, you'll see aspects of Muslim culture, you see aspects of, and you full on have Jews in space later on in the series. <laughs> um, not quite Mel Brooks style, but like there's yeah. literally like tribes of Jews in the future, but there's no Africans. There's no African influence. This is a very white book, um, in, in many senses, there's there's Asian influence. There's all kinds of little things, but there there is very little African influence. And mm. for me, that's one part that's hard for me. And then I think, you know, some of the medieval style, like you get a, a lot of the weapons have this medieval feel, but the whole, you know, I was supposed to bear a male child or a female child to get married to, you know, there's definitely intentional sexism in this society but i'm wondering how much is intentional versus unintentional and how much is out of date do either of you feel that because i i definitely was kind of cringing through this last read of it that i may not have in earlier times i have my opinions on it marissa uh well for me i feel like the bernie Gesserit stuff like i don't have a problem with it because i think it's supposed to be like that like they're obviously set up to do this like weird scheming breeding program and jessica is rebelling against it for more uh, emotional reasons or a little bit egotistical maybe reasons as well mm-hmm. um so yeah i didn't like read it as like oh no what's he putting in here i was kind of like it felt intentional to me mm-hmm. well about you, yeah i think he was a pretty liberated dude i mean he lived in a very progressive part of the country anyways but mm. yeah michael um so it's kind of like the um that uh, Noah Berlotsky thing where he's trying to say that you know Paul Atreides is like a Mary Sue kind of thing and I really thought about that for a while and I thought about like how this guy Noah Berlotsky who wrote this article was like backing it up and I was just like this doesn't feel right this is not the Frank Herbert I know I've read almost every one of his works I've read so many different books about him by other people I'm just like this is not the Frank I know And then I started thinking about that for a long time. And then I had to come to the realization that, like, in some ways, this guy I really look up to, Frank Herbert, is so intelligent and so uh, progressive, like you're saying. Um, But there are very subtle places here and there where that point can be made. But it's just like Noah didn't know where those points were. So, like, for example, if someone wants to hit at Frank Herbert on the cultural thing and how he's using a very outdated, uh, like, uh, United States white man's view from like a person born in the 1920s, like Frank Herbert was there, there are only very few places that that can be pointed out because Frank Herbert was not a racist, right? Uh, there's no indication of that at all anywhere. And, but the thing is, it's like some of the outdated ideas. If you look at the green brain, if Noah really wanted to write this article, he could try to go at it from that angle because the green brain is the only place where, 
there are kind of like generalized statements about different cultures in the world with the races involved, kind of like saying that Chinese people, uh, and he doesn't say it just like this, of course, but the Chinese character is like very calculating and wants to get with a very creative Irish girl who's a redhead, you know, but then there's the chase scene and all that, like a lot of different Frank Herbert stuff. So the outdated, like generalized stuff, they're only in very specific places. Another one is the Jewish thing. But um, and Michael Weingrad, Dr. Michael Weingrad was the one who wrote uh, the article on he didn't like that Frank Herbert used um, such an outdated view of Jewish people in Chapter House Dune when he was showing those people. But at, at the same time, it's like I do agree with Michael Weingrad after thinking about it for a while. Like, yes. But at the same time, if you socioanalyze Frank Herbert, which is like seeing him for who he was, who he took himself to be, what kind of lessons he was trying to pass on to his readers, you see that like. Frank Herbert was trying to pass on a lesson of you can't just take your childhood religion and expect that that's going to have all the answers for you in life no matter what. And like me, for example, I love my childhood religion has given me many benefits, but there are certain lessons that cannot be taught to me or learned just from that. I have to branch out. I have to live my own life. I have to experience other things and learn from other sociocultural systems as well and not just say that like my and it all goes back to Frank Herbert's life and Dreamer of Dune. Any of these people who want to write on Frank Herbert, if they haven't read Dreamer of Dune, they can't speak to it at all. Like mm-hmm. the evil lady thing, that, that is straight his mother-in-law in his first marriage. But you wouldn't know that unless you read the stuff. Well, we like, see that all the time. We see that all the time with Philip K. Dick. I mean, we have a running joke about on, on our show about how we need a Philip K. Dick divorcepedia so, <laughs> to make sure that we know exactly who he had recently divorced from. <laughs> Uh, when he wrote said book because this character obviously is modeled after Anne or Tessa or whoever he was married to at that time. And and definitely, I think, with Herbert, just like anybody else, he's going to be influenced by the things that are going on around him in his world. And, um, you know, I you know, we're not going to begrudge a guy for that. I mean, I think Dune is far from perfect, um, but considering that it was written or conceived in the 50s, written in the early 60s, it holds up amazingly well, far better, I would say, than, for example, the early Foundation novels. Dude, Frank Herbert is awesome, period. Well, I know you feel that way. I might not be as big of a fan of Herbert as you are, but that's okay. (laughs) You know, I do a Philip K. Dick podcast, you know, (laughs) right? But, you know, I definitely think Herbert is, is a good author. I don't you know, especially if you get later in the series, I think books one through three are fantastic of Dune. Four and five are kind of wacky, and I'm I'm not kind of sure where he was going with that. And I would recommend one through three to anybody. Four through five, I recommend for completionists. And mm-hmm. I'm not per- like I'm kind of getting ahead on things, but and I am not a fan of the Kevin J. Anderson Brian Herbert prequels, which I think. Is anyone? Is anyone? Yeah, I don't know. I've, like, I've never heard anyone. <laughs> I'm always like asking people, should I read the sequels and stuff? And I've never found anyone recommending those yet. Well, I will tell you that they have a separate series called Hellhole. And I read mm-hmm. the first book of that and I didn't think it was, I thought it was good. Um, but I could not, I was not down for those, those Dune prequels. I bought the, the first one when it came out. And I was excited, and I just, just no. I, I think that it doesn't have the panache. It doesn't have the, 
world building. It's it's overthought, and I don't think that it works on on any level. But I want to get um, we're starting to get to close to an hour, and I want to get into some general themes and talk about some of the parts in the book and and just what you guys think about those individual parts. First of all, fear is the mind killer. This is obviously one of the most you know, quotable parts of Dune. It's one of the parts that's like a huge part of the movies and everything. Um, how how does the whole concept of fear is the mind killer and how um, it if it threads through the novel? Like, I personally love that part of it. I don't know. Does it have as big of an impact on you you two as readers? Yes. Um, that whole aspect. I'm sorry. That's kind of a bad question, <laughs> Marissa. Yeah, you mean the philosophy of of the fear is the mind killer as yeah, like a practice? Yeah. Um, totally. I feel like I even use it sometimes, but then I get embarrassed at myself being such a dork. But I totally like would think it and use it sometimes to be like calm <laughs> down. <laughs> calm, yeah, right. Um, I think I don't know. I mean, I've always loved that part, and although when. I hear it out loud in like some of the adaptations that it sounds a little cheesy to me, but I just, (laughs) but I try to remember how I felt the first time I read that, you know, (laughs) when it didn't sound so cheesy to me. That's exactly what I'm saying. It sounds cheesy in my head when I think about it too, but I still love it. Like, I'm like, it's so good. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, And how about, um, so no, we haven't really talked about like the actual, ecology and the way that Arrakis works as, as a setting. Um, I've always loved all the aspects that from the sandworms to the Fremen to, I think all those aspects, I know we kind of talked about the, the world building, but I think Herbert did such a good job of making this world, this setting forward the narrative as a writer. I really appreciated that, um, all these stuff, all the stuff is there for a reason. And I don't know um, how you guys felt about, you know, because um, the sandworms kind of get, you know, kind th- that can look cheesy too when you're like having the picture of Paul Atreides with two giant chains like riding on the back of a giant sandworm. No, it's not cheesy. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> right. But um, I, I, you know, I, it's, I'm a guy who generally likes like mindfuck science fiction and less of the like super crazy like slay your dragon fantasy stuff. And so I think some of the sandworm stuff doesn't hold up for me quite as well as it used to. Like, but I think the idea, I think what's cool about it is, is that Paul Atreides is, I mean, all the Fremen, they, they ride the sandworms and that's like the whole part of the thing. But I think it's, it's a good analogy for him, like, kind of, like, it sounds so cheesy to say, but, like, getting on the horse, right? And um, for taking the reins of this society and doing that, that I think that's what's so important about those parts because it also ties into the whole, like, fear is the mind killer because that's where you really see him taking a bold leap and jumping on the back of this giant sandworm yep. doing that. I mean, it's the moment he becomes a Fremen, right? Like, that's like he he goes through that childhood initiation. That I think they say that the kids do it at like six or something, or <laughs> right. riding the worms. And as a 
Now, and I got to ask you too about this, Marissa. As an editor, how does it make you feel when you read this book when the narrative jumps around like it does? Because he breaks a lot of rules, <laughs> right? Uh, well, actually, for me, I think he's the one I point to when I, I tell people don't try to do this point of view switching thing. But I feel like he pulls it off. Like, right? It, it's there's it, only like it was one place where I found I got confused about the point of view for a second, like the way he cues it and just like smoothly transitions and you always know exactly whose head you're in. I mean, maybe you guys have a different experience, but I thought it was smooth. Yep. Right. And that's the hard thing is, is like, that is totally against the rules. Right? It's against the rules because it's so hard to do. Like, I think it's not that it's against the rules as much as if anyone that's not a genius tries to do it, it's a spectacular, horrible mess. <laughs> right. I really liked how William Tupont, um, who is like literature, right? He was able to break down the banquet scene and then show that Frank Herbert does this all the time, which is where he uses uh, direct, indirect, and semi-direct discourse in the same way that Gustave Flaubert did in Madame Bovary. Uh, and when he broke that down, I was like, oh, wow. And then he's like, yeah, these places where Frank Herbert uses like that part of the paragraph where it's like in italics and those are the deepest thoughts of the people. That's yeah. the part where Frank Herbert is directly trying to talk to the weed reader, just like uh, our minds work on a daily basis, like those little whispers of, like, you know, uh, warnings of this or that, that kind of thing. Right. It's and- so good. This is actually um, going, like, way back to the start of the podcast when you were saying, like, what attracted us to it uh, when we first read it. That was the thing when I was a kid, reading those lines of the inner dialogue and being like, this is how adults think? What? <laughs> like. <laughs> It just felt so real and so like like I had an insight into how grown-ups were thinking about the world. So one thing that I wanted to kind of bring up, unless anybody has anything else on the on the narrative structure, anything? Uh, there was there is something I think is really cool about that narrative structure that we should mention is um, how what Irulan is doing mm-hmm. is giving us that little bit of prescience as we're reading. So like these little like spoilers and clues so that we're kind of seeing this story like paul sees his unfolding future Mm -hmm. because he's getting that gift of being able to see into the future yeah and like so it's sort of like that same vague thing where she's her own personality we don't really know who she is or who's writing this or why um but she's just dropping in these little details about what happens in the future and what happens to the storyline it's like the most spoilery book ever. I think that's another reason why I love it. Like, he's not afraid of being like, and this is what's going to happen soon. <laughs> and I wonder, too, like, you got to imagine Frank Herbert sitting in that house in Port Townsend, Washington, being like, fuck, I got this great book, man. This is incredible. And like, yeah. and then I'm wondering when he got done with it and he starts sending it out and all the, and he has to get it published by an automotive pub- manual publisher. It's like, shit. They really didn't get it. <laughs> I mean, that's why every time I read it, I have that feeling. I'm like, how did he make this thing? It's so good. It's so insane. It's so detailed. And then, yeah, to stick to stick through like that and not get disheartened with all those rejections is amazing. He had to... Say, go ahead, Mike. 
I, I will say, but I'm very long-winded, unfortunately, so I won't go all down that road. But I will just say uh, many of the same exact things he's doing in these smaller works before he made Dune, you can see 100% in Dune. So when you're talking about, like, uh, do we see things later on? It's like, oh, yeah, we see the Jungian awakening just like an under pressure. Where that, And he keeps doing this stuff where it's like he gives you enough hints to just about see what's going to happen. And then the boom comes, and it's like an awakening to the reader. And he uses that same stuff in all these other books. It's really cool. Cool. Oh, yeah. I have to read his old stuff. Oh, yeah. Real good. <laughs> I, I I have read, uh, was it the Lazarus? Effect. Inc- yeah, the Lazarus Effect I read many, many, many years ago. And I, I when I'm talking, I mean, I was reading these in the 90s. So I read a couple other Herbert works, but it was like so long ago. They kind of all bleed together, but that was, it was the late 80s, early 90s when I read the whole thing from beginning to end, and mm-hmm. and then I really had to force myself to read 4 and 5 again when I reread it, but I, I definitely loved through book 3, but um, kind of getting ahead of myself here, um, but um, how do you guys feel about any of the adaptations? Um, do, any opinions on... David Lynch's film versus I know you said uh, Mike that you saw the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries first. I love, and so did yeah. And Brian Herbert loved that one the best. Yeah, I um, just finished last night rewatching all the way through Children of Dune, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I personally do. I know a lot of people. The problem with the here's my feeling on the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries is. The David Lynch movie looks awesome, but it doesn't tell the story right well or whatever, (laughs) you know, and it looks cool. But David Lynch was absolutely the wrong person to make a Dune movie. Who the hell greenlit the idea of the guy who eventually made Mulholland Drive making Dune? I don't know. Brian Herbert said (laughs) the same thing in his book. He said, like, that was his movie. It was not my father's stuff that was like oh wow okay. well that's uh, authors feel that way pretty commonly it's not the worst adaptation okay. i've ever seen of a book that you i know, i liked it personally oh really <laughs> I, yeah uh, i didn't but i mean the what it is like it is a treasure but i don't know exactly what it is right. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> i will say this the single worst adaptation of a novel I've ever seen that I liked was Michael Mann, who's a great filmmaker, made a version of The Keep, F. Paul Wilson's um, horror novel, The Keep. That has to be the single worst translation of a novel I've ever seen. Really? <laughs> of anything ever. It's worth, it's a terrible movie, but it's worth seeing if you've read the book just to be like, wow, what the fuck were they thinking? I want to, I'm going to read the book and watch the film just for the that experience. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so, so does the Children of Dune miniseries uh, or series, whatever it is, does that cover the first book, Dune book as well? Or is it just the two? The first miniseries covers the first book. And then the second miniseries covers Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. Ah, okay. So, when you finish reading those, then you can watch it. But, um, and I do think they are pretty decent adaptations and I, I enjoyed watching it for what it is. And I definitely wanted to watch it one more time before Denny Venue, like not, I predict is going to knock it out of the park, um, next year. And this coming from, because I'm a huge fan of 
Denis Villeneuve and everything that he's done from Arrival. And I love Blade Runner 2049. It was good. And I think he is just going to do an awesome job. And um, the, on the day that we recorded this, I just went to see Dr. Sleep last night. And Rebecca Ferguson is fucking amazing in Dr. Sleep. And the fact that she's playing Lady Jessica just uh, is awesome. All the casting so far that I've seen for this Denny Venu version of Dune looks amazing. Yeah, he's making two movies, right? Two movies, and they're doing a Benny Gesserit TV series for yes. Amazon. I don't know, you guys. Do you feel like, I feel like it's going to change. If this is good, it's going to change science fiction fantasy world. So I- many people haven't read this book. Or know about it. Well, and that's the thing is it's one of the most well-read science fiction novels of all time, but it still is not mainstream. And I think a movie like this could do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. The pop culture world it could get really shaken up if this is good. Yeah. Um, what we have to hope for is that it hits like a Lord of the Rings. Um, I'm a little worried that, you know, Blade Runner 2049 underwhelmed, uh, at the box office, and my concern is that if the word of, if it takes a little while for the word of mouth to spread, um, that could it could hurt the changing of everything. But I I hope you're right, Marissa. I hope it does. Yeah, change. I was trying to imagine it, and I was like, it'll be maybe there's going to be a time where it's like Halloween, and like everyone's just in still suits and robes, <laughs> and <laughs> people are cosplaying as do well and. Yeah. Well, you know, they're pretty confident in it if they're going to go ahead and do a TV series as well. Which is a um, great idea, by the way. Like, the Benny Gesserit story, I was totally thinking I would love to watch a TV show about that. Like, that goes really into the characters and spends time in that culture. Now, and if you look at the interviews that the uh, that the writers that are working on the staff of that show have given, um, they, they're excited because they're all... A couple of them are, anyways, are Dune nerds, and what they're excited about is they get to tell original stories set in this universe, but they are doing lip service to saying that they are um, following the general mythology, and, you know, I do know that Denis Venu is overseen as a producer, so they want it to be one all-consistent universe, and if we're getting a TV series and a movie of Dune... It's really important, though, that Dune fans, like, you know, really help spread the word for this because we want it to do well. Um, yeah. How do you feel about it, Mike? You- uh, well, it depends where it goes because a lot of times there is this um, pattern where people try to make people marvel instead of think. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, good point. And, like going on to read all the different things that I have like for the rest of my life and then going back to Dune and like, holy crap, I cannot believe he was saying this stuff in like the 1960s, 1970s, all the books he he wrote. And then like you get the message of the stuff and it's always just like trying to marvel, you know, a, a typical scene in a movie where it's like, ah, uh, and then where's the deep thinking? And the thing is, is like that story behind stuff. Like if you go on to read, like, like I won't, I'm not a Jungian psychologist or anything, right? My wife has an actual psychology degree. So when I talk about psychology with her, she's like, Michael, where'd you read this, right? But <laughs> I've read three uh, Jung books, right? And it's just going back to Frank Herbert and it's just like, I cannot believe all the stuff that is in Frank Herbert. Like he's trying to awaken the readers to certain things. And then when you look at other books quoting Frank, he was literally trying to wake up people to certain ways of thinking. 
And it, all of his works are like that, which I know I'm going against the grain here, but my favorite works are five and six because, like, that semester on Michel de Montaigne, that philosopher, going through a reflexive discourse and then the really deep touch point uh, that he has to say, it, like, comes and goes before you even notice it because, you know. But anyways, look, we can talk about that another time. But with the movie... <laughs> I just really hope that they put some actual deep thinking in a way that's portrayed on the screen to the people to think. But I don't even know how you do that. Yeah, I was just thinking, uh, that sounds like a brilliant idea. And then I'm trying to think if I've ever seen that executed, because I think TV is not good at that. Nope. Well, um, I would say that Denny Veneuve is as is, is good a chance that we have to, to get yeah, this. Yeah, that's true. So, Marissa, I'd, I'd like to know, uh, before... I get our final thoughts on, on, on this book. Um, how has, since this was an early one for you and you mentioned a little bit that you use examples from Dune. Do you, as an editor, how, how do you feel that Dune is still influencing how you work with other authors today? Does it, it still has an impact. I imagine like specifically this book on your, on your, yeah. Career? Did you say how is it affecting how I work with authors? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, definitely like what you just said, the the point of view stuff and the characterization, I'll mm-hmm. definitely use that. Like I'll point to examples in Dune for that because he's just such a master of it. Mm-hmm. And um, Do you ever tell writers that just go read Dune? <laughs> like, um, is that one of the ones, one of the books that you... Uh, I actually haven't really, but only because I would have to be working with someone who's writing a book trying to do something similar, you know, and I don't think right. I really have an author like that yet, but I totally would if I was working with anyone who was doing like a, I don't know, writing about ecology or that kind of science fiction or multi-point of view, if they were actually going to attempt it, I would definitely tell them to read it. Mm-hmm. All right. So final thoughts. I'm going to, um, of course, this is to me a, a, and the way we always rate things on on, on uh, the podcast, this would be five still suits out of five for me. Um, of course, I don't think it's absolutely perfect. I'm not super like I. Frank Herbert is definitely not totally my jam. I I have read some some of the other works, and I, they just haven't caught to me. And he doesn't speak to me in the same way that. Philip K. Dick does, for example, but that's why I do a Philip K. Dick podcast. Um, but I definitely think Dune is, you know, my first take when I first finished this, you know, for those who follow me on Facebook was to be like, hey, hot take, guys. Dune is good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. there's a reason people like this fucking book. I mean, it's really good. And the funny thing was that I have to admit that for this Hugo series, when I looked at all the books I was going to have to read for this series, my first thought was, oh, shit, i got to read Dune again? Oh, shit. And I liked it a lot more reading it this time than I expected to. And Yeah, this, is my, um, this was my favorite read of it. So I feel like every time I read it, I'm like, that was even better than the last time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Marissa, final, I mean, it's five out of five for you, right? I'm assuming. Yeah, I'll give it um, five out of five little drowned makers. Okay, and Mike, I'm I'm assuming you know. I yeah, I don't even have to ask, <laughs> do I? Um, all right, well, uh, yeah, I Dune 
is a classic for a reason, and I don't think anyone's going to ever, like, you know, argue that... I, I don't think anyone who's a serious science fiction reader is ever going to argue against against Dune. Mike, what are you hoping that a new reader to Dune or new readers coming to it because of the movie will get out of Dune? Well, just going back to, like, Dreamer of Dune, I picked up that this might be what he was doing from his works because it affected me so much, but like Brian Herbert just hit it right on the head when he was introduced to the Slatteries who were students of Carl Jung over in Switzerland. And Mm -hmm. he even set up his own practice for a while. Frank Herbert did. And it's like one of the things Jung had as a mission was curing neuroses, which he called psychic infection, which Mm -hmm. is like superstitious crap that all of us believe cliches we fall into and stuff like that patterns from our parents and grandparents. And like for the rest of his life, you can see that Frank Herbert was thinking very deeply Based on his past experience, he was, and that's why he talks about philosophical musing all the time in his works, especially Duncan in like five and six, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, all I want to see is more neuroses to be cured and like more people's lives to become better because they read this stuff. And uh, Marissa, what, what do you hope, um, what's your hope for the new readers that come to Doom because of uh, the Denis Venu movie? Um, I was just trying to think about that and. I say everything because I think he does everything in there so well, like the the world building, the characters, the the motivations of characters, and the backstory, and the dialogue, and um, territorial sandworms. You can put that into any book, and I'll read it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Herberters, um, I had fun talking about Dune. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Oh yes, and. Um, Keep it paranoid. Stay paranoid.